Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sometimes older literary works provide fascinating insights into their historical moments and into our ongoing quest to understand the human. And sometimes they're dull as dirt. On this week's episode, part two of our Samuel Johnson three-parter, we finally hit a major dud with Johnson's Rasselas. And yet, there are a few good entertaining rambles to be had out of our frustration with the text and in Daniel's ruminations on the oddities of Johnson locating his philosophical romance in Abyssinia, or modern-day Ethiopia. We also talk the vanity of human wishes and 18th-century poetics, something maybe three people besides Claude will be utterly fascinated by. Look, they can't all be Don Quixote. If you're online, check us out at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com, find us on Facebook at The Cannonball Podcast, and on Twitter at Cannonball Pod. The Cannonball is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Check out some of the other shows on the network at agorapodcastnetwork.com. And one last note, if you're in the New York area and need reading and writing tutoring or are interested in online tutoring, let us know. I have a tutoring business on the side and a newborn, so I'm always looking for a few more clients. If you need some help, send an email to claudemoink at gmail.com. That's C-L-A-U-D-E-M-O-I-N-C at gmail.com. We can also produce literary lectures on demand. I'm not entirely certain what situations would call for that, but for some quality literary infotainment, hit us up. Welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. This is Claude Meyer and Goozer, and with me as always is my co-host, Daniel Doty. Hey, Daniel, what makes you happy? Oh, you know, gosh, I sure would. I'll tell you what doesn't make me happy is physical security and all the pleasures and comforts I could want. Um, <laughs> that I can tell you for sure. Not even so. You know what? Don't even try. I, you know, oh, I'm just, man. I, I learned from, you know... I've learned, Claude, that my pursuit of <laughs> of, uh, of sensual indulgence th- that I'm so known for um, is, of course, doomed to failure and uh, and existential dread. Um, such is the lesson of uh, of our work today. 
Okay. If you haven't been keeping up or if this is your first time here, I am sorry. Uh, this is part two of our three-part series on Samuel Johnson. Uh, today we're covering his creative endeavors, looking at Vanity of Human Wishes and uh, Rasselas, the kind of novel-type thing he wrote in order to pay his mother's funeral bills. Now, that that may or may not be kind of the legend mm-hmm. uh, as I couldn't find anything necessarily to disprove it. Yeah. Uh, Boswell <laughs> says it's so, so I suppose it's so. Well, and uh, I mean, you of course taking Samuel Johnson's biggest fan in the world with a grain of salt. <laughs> right. Um, but anyway, uh, that's, that's at least the, the legend that's been <clears throat> handed down to us. Mm-hmm. That seems as if it, is truthful is that he wrote the thing in a week to pay his mother's funeral bills, which perhaps adds to its, I suppose, gloomy or pessimistic cast. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the vanity of human wishes is uh, a poem he wrote earlier. And we were talking about this before we started recording, but all of this, okay, this episode is going to be coming in a little bit late. if, If you're a regular subscriber, because it took us a while to get through this, not necessarily because these are extraordinarily long works, but because it really is something of a slog to read. <laughs> Once I, I, I mean, I, I'm not trying to to trash Johnson. I sort of did that last time for his misogyny, <laughs> and I'll trash him for his misogyny. Right, but it, it's because you find yourself sort of repeat. He, he repeats the same point again and again and again and again mm-hmm. and again. Uh, you know what I'm thinking now as we're talking about it? And yeah, and I, and I guess I should say I too had a, had, had trouble <laughs> summoning the will to read another chapter of Rasmus. Even though it's, it's not a long <laughs> book, the chapters are short. Like it's, it just shouldn't have been, but I just kind of like, oh, that guy. Um, and typically, <laughs> with, I mean, honestly, one of the cool things about this project is I've been, ex- I've been surprised. Honestly, I've been surprised to learn just how, eager to read once I get started, a lot of these works are like, I, I fully expected say the divine comedy to be, you know, kind of like this. Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't, it was like a really, it was like a, it was like a really uh, uh, enjoyable and special affective experience actually doing the reading. Um, yeah. Not this, not so with, <laughs> with, uh, with Rasselas. And I, but I think we did ourselves, maybe we did Rasselas maybe a disservice in that. I think if we had read it first, it would have been a little fresher than, and then read like the Rambler essays and the Idler essays second, because this is all guys, this is all just boilerplate Johnson. It's just Johnson's things <laughs> that he's always harping on. Do you know if you ever like follow like an opinion columnist for like decades and you just, you know what they're going to write every time. Um, yeah. It's kind of, it, it's, it's, well, it's a bit like that. Um, but I think maybe if we had read Rasselas and the, and, uh, and the many of human wishes, which I actually, I actually kind of enjoyed, um, but that might be because I'm, I'm, I'm uh, more of a, a philistine when it comes to poetry. So maybe I'm more impressed by mediocre poetry. Um, oh, no. <laughs> but that is, that is just to say that, like, if y'all listened to our last episode, and uh, and thank you so much if you did, and if you didn't, check it out. Uh, we we make you know we we make fun when we don't enjoy a book. We we talk about how awful everything is, but it's still hey, it makes for a fun episode. Um, yeah, it's still good listening. But anyway, um, so if you listened last time, you know what the hobby horses are going to be basically for the concerns that, uh, that uh, Johnson was bringing up in these works. And I think that, that, that contributed to why 
It was such a chore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you listen to the last one, don't listen to this one. But there, um, <laughs> there is some stuff in here that I think we can address in terms of, I guess, genre. Sure. And so we're going to start with Vanity of Human Wishes, which is a poetic endeavor. And it's modeled on the 10th satire of Juvenal. Uh, in Johnson's own terms, it's the 10th satire of Juvenal imitated. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is something to sort of start with. Um, you know, at a certain point, if we're still alive and if we still have technology or electricity, I, I suppose we will get to uh, Alexander Pope or John Dryden. Mm-hmm. Um, the major mode of... 18th century poetry, and I'm including Dryden in the 18th century, even though it was mm-hmm. 17th and so on and so forth. The, um, hey, the long, the long 18th, 18th century, exactly. Yes, <laughs> Scholarship yes, has a useful way to handle this. <laughs> um, the the major mode of poetics is the heroic couplet. Uh, the heroic couplet is. Uh, two consecutive rhymed lines of iambic pentameter, and the development of the heroic couplet goes back to i believe the 15th century mm-hmm. maybe 14th it it in english becomes the sound of translated latin verse yeah uh why is kind of up for debate uh but i mean if you know your latin you know that the the romans wrote in uh hexameters and as we sort of discussed in Paradise Lost, the the Latin and the Greek it doesn't rhyme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, that's that's not how their poetry is constructed. Rhyme is not an element considered when they're constructing their poetry. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the the English, in order to approximate this, and I think they're following um, other kinds of Latinate models or other European models, is to incorporate the rhyme as a kind of elegance. Mm-hmm. And there are all sorts of reasons for rhyme. You can use rhyme as a sort of memory tool. Uh, I'm, I'm reading my son tons of Dr. Seuss right now. Yeah, yeah. I got so much of it in my head that I can't get rid of. But it's, it's a kind of memory tool. It's a mnemonic. Um, you can use rhyme to signal a certain kind of elegance. I, I believe it was William Butler Yeats who said, uh, I may have talked about this on the Milton episode. It's been so long ago. I can't remember, but I believe it was William Butler Yeats who said that the, the first term of a rhyme sort of opens up a position and the the second line clicks it shut. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, so it's got this kind of elegance to it. And, and the heroic couplet in particular can have this um, quick wit to it. Um, in the 18th century, the heroic couplet becomes the major mode because – English poets are modeling themselves for a variety of different reasons on Latin verse. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the inherited idea, inherited from other English poets, idea of how Latin verse is supposed to sound. So they're going full on with it. Okay. There's a kind of elegance to it. And I have to express an admiration 
and enjoyment of the heroic couplet. Well, yeah, I mean, it's called the heroic couplet because you're a friggin' hero if you can pull it off. <laughs> no, right? it's called the no, heroic okay. couplet because you're using it to translate <laughs> you're hero, uh, heroic poetry. And epic, but I got you. Okay, heroic well, that poetry. makes a little. That's okay. That, yeah, well, I mean, that's up for debate, and I'll check the OED later. But <laughs> okay, but um, and, and, and if anybody's interested at all in what you can do in. Uh, I guess the 20th century with heroic couplets or, or more, more contemporary heroic couplets, look up James Merrill. Hmm. Uh, Merrill was a brilliant formalist and he had a kind of obsession with the couplet or the heroic couplet and could employ it extraordinarily wittily and elegantly without necessarily turning it into a, a kind of um, lockstep rhyme. Uh, I'm going to diverge here mm-hmm. we're talking about the 18th century and diver and diversion is a major mode of 18th century writing and um and we're also talking about samuel johnson which means that there might not be a whole lot to say so i will <laughs> say this that uh you can think about the heroic couplet or or think about uh these kinds of forms sort of like jam bands and i don't know about you uh daniel mm-hmm. Um, I'm not so much into jam bands, but I do like the Grateful Dead. Sure. And what you can kind of hear in a great Grateful Dead jam is everyone moving sort of in their own sphere. Mm-hmm. So it becomes this kind of like the drummer, one drummer is doing this in this way. Another drummer is doing this in this way. One guitarist is doing this in this way. The other guitarist is doing this in this way. The bassist is doing this in this way. And yet all those spheres coordinate. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you hear in a bad jam band, Fish, is everything <laughs> in lockstep. Yeah, And yeah. The, the couplet in extraordinarily deft hands – can be more like the Grateful Dead, everything moving and you get the wit of it, but it's smoothed over. And so you can kind of follow it and see it and be enchanted by it without necessarily falling into that. And yet in poor hands, it's just kind of a trap, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it's well, it becomes easy to do, it's, but it's, it's, it's difficult to do well. It's basically the the perfect trap for sing song, like sing song. Yes, and yeah, and and all the all the limitations and annoyances that come with <laughs> with that. Yeah, and honestly, you know, I, I I brought Pope up as someone who would be you know irritating to read. Pope is actually Alexander Pope is actually extraordinarily fun to read. It's mm-hmm. just okay. One of the things that he could do extraordinarily well is. Um, diminish the emphasis with enjambment. Mm-hmm. And this is something that we we're sort of talking about with Milton is that Milton enjams lines to carry the sense into the next line because he has a kind of the- theological argument to go along with that, an aesthetic theological argument. And Pope will enjam lines to play with, in this very elegant way, how the rhyme actually functions. And it 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 sort of gives you enough variety and variation that it keeps the heroic couplet, which can fall into this dull lockstep. Yeah. It keeps it very, very fresh. 
Johnson doesn't necessarily do that. Okay, <laughs> so, so maybe we can, we can try a sample so a listener can uh, can hear what we're talking about. Um, I guess. Yeah. Okay, so it's it's uh, an imitation of Juvenal. Juvenal was uh, a Roman writer who wrote satires. Uh, I believe he wrote. Um, Oh shoot! How many satires did he write? I didn't write that one down, but he wrote several <laughs> satires, um, published in several different books, and this is the tenth satire. And uh, aside from being a satirist, I mean, part and parcel of being a satirist was being a rhetorician. Mm-hmm. So juvenile satires are extraordinarily rhetorically constructed. They're rhetorical arguments, and that's what can kind of make eighteenth-century uh, poetry dull is because. It's so very transparently an argument. It's rhetoric. Yeah. The the we're we're sort of in this. Uh, we're suffering the repercussions of romanticism in many <laughs> in many kinds of ways. Uh, but one of the things that romantic poetry did was tried to bury the lead, so to speak, with the rhetoric of poetry. Mm-hmm. In romantic poetry and poetry that comes after, there's often a rhetorical claim or a rhetorical argument lurking underneath, but we're meant to believe that that's not the important part. Yeah. Um, the poem itself is the argument. <clears throat> whereas in the 18th century, the poem is the vehicle for the argument. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I suppose when we get to, to Wordsworth, I'll make that make sense. So keep listening. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. But, um, the 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 rhetoric is part and parcel with the the poem and with the poetic act so that johnson is making this argument about well the vanity of human wishes which i i was meditating on this and we didn't quite cover it last time but there's this issue of vanity and vanitas mm-hmm. right um Vanity is connected in this way to futility and the reminder of the universal attribute of death. Yeah. So in some ways, uh, we always have to remember that all of our endeavors are essentially futile. Well, yeah. I mean, that was, of course, the great uh – well, you know that that was, of course, the secret to, to humbling the great with the whole uh, the whole legend about in a Roman triumph. The you know the person being honored would have someone standing behind them whispering, "You are mortal. You are mortal." You know, that's, that's sort <laughs> yes. of the the, the the knowledge of death, I guess, is a a uh, yeah a a, hum, a humbling uh, element. So yeah. Anyway, sorry. Continue. Right. So um, juvenile satire uh, begins. With this claim that vanity or, you know, the belief in the importance of our own works is a universal evil. It looks at the first major evil is gold or greed and its effects. The the second thing is preferment or, I guess, political drive. Third is knowledge. Fourth is... Attempts to prove yourself through valor or war. The fifth is, um, I guess, the vanity of wanting more time mm-hmm. and and wanting to be very old. The sixth vanity is 
kids or children are believing that you're creating something that's going to go on and make the world better. And then there's a conclusion <laughs> that, all right, if all of these things are doomed to fail, then what do you do? Uh, Juvenile says, eh, eh, just trust fate, I yeah. guess. And wouldn't you know it, Vanity of Human Wishes by Samuel Johnson follows the exact same rubric. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, like to the the, I, had, I had no – I didn't actually – wasn't curious enough to look up what Juvenile's actual satire was with that. That's extremely on the nose, man. No, it, it is. And Johnson's begins with vanity as a universal, goes through greed, uh, preferment or political drive – uh, the vanity of knowledge, the vanity of warfare or military conquest, the vanity of wanting more life or more time, the vanity of passing something on with their children. And the conclusion is, eh, God, I guess. So it's, it's not a translation because it's not a word for word taking the original and then trying to represent the original as much as possible in the um in the new language but it's an imitation it's taking the structure and the ideas of the original and then extrapolating them and making them contemporary to Johnson's audience in some way shape or form mm-hmm. and this was kind of a uh an issue in the 18th century what is general enough to survive the ages yet specific enough to make the point clear. Right. Or, or make a point that isn't, you know, just banal, I suppose. Right. Exactly. Okay. So if you want to hear Johnson's version of this, uh, this is the, the intro, the, the introduction where he lays out his thesis let observation with extensive views survey mankind from China to Peru, remark each anxious toil, each eager strife, and watch the busy scenes of crowded life, then say how hope and fear, desire and hate, are spread with snares of clouded maze of fate, where wavering man, betrayed by venture's pride, to tread the dreary paths without a guide, as treacherous phantoms in the midst delude, shuns fancied ills, or chases airy good, how rarely reason guides the stubborn choice, Rules the bold hand or prompts the suppliant voice. How nations sink by darling schemes oppressed when vengeance listens to the fool's request. Fate wings with every wish the afflictive dart. Each gift of nature and each grace of art with fatal heat, impetuous courage glows with fatal sweetness. Elocution flows. Impeachment stops the speaker's powerful breath and restless fire precipitates on death. Okay. Um, This is my problem with Johnson Mm -hmm. is the regularity of the rhyme. Perhaps this is a 21st century prejudice, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't really vary. You're in in stopped rhyme and it really is lockstep. Yeah. I was noticing that they're really the only – the only kind of slant rhyme, like an actual vowel sound in there was the couplet of delude with good. But otherwise, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it was, it was the exact same like phonemes. Like it wasn't even playing around with the, uh, you know, adjacent kind of pronunciations and whatnot. Like, you know, like for example, Shakespeare would do all the time. 
you know, like that, right. that was one of his, you know, to the point that I became very frustrated as a student when I was like, well, this doesn't actually rhyme at all. You moron. You, uh, you screwed up your play. But anyway, do, yeah. Do you, do you want me to disabuse an ocean? Oh, please. It, it rhymed in the 17th century. Oh, I knew it. As soon as I was like <laughs> venting my spleen, I was like, you know what? I bet actually it did make sense at the time. Anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it, this is another aside. Uh, I, I think I may have mentioned it way long ago in the Chaucer episode, but I, I had a, a professor in undergrad who was sort of pointing out that we expect Chaucer to be spoken in the Middle English. Mm-hmm. So it's a one that a and whatever. Uh, but we never expect Shakespeare to sound like Tobe or not Tobe. That's the question. Uh, they look at you as if you're an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's to be or not to be. That's the question. Uh, one of the things that, uh, this is all about asides because we're trying to pad the episode. One of the <laughs> things that is really, uh, sort of, weird to get by in in 18th century writing or 17th 18th century writing or long 18th century writing mm-hmm. uh join is pronounced jine huh that yeah. o i and so you see it in rhymes a lot and you're like what is dryden doing there yeah. but you know i i one of my undergraduate professors was the canonical biographer of Dryden. Yeah, so yeah. Like, oh, I'll tell you. <laughs> I'll tell you exactly. Uh, but anyway. Okay, well, in, in that case, um, I take it all back. Johnson, you're doing great, sweetie. Uh, Shakespeare was not better than you. He was just as much of a hack as you. So, no, all right. Anyway, we'll so, let to continue. <laughs> so anyway, um, you know, that's that I think is the, the issue with this is that we, we go through all of these things. They're very, very general and broad, but you can see how um, Johnston is applying contemporary to him points mm-hmm. when he gets to the, the problems with um, political preferment. He says, speak thou whose thoughts at humble pace for, Peace repine, shall Woolsey's wealth with Woolsey's end be thine, or lifts thou now with safer pride content the wisest justice on the banks of Trent? For why did Woolsey near the steps of fate on weak foundations raise the enormous weight? Why but to sink beneath misfortune's blow with louder ruin to the gulfs below? Uh, okay, so Woolsey wasn't a contemporary of Johnson's, but he's updating this for an English audience with historical references that an English audience would have understood. Yeah. Right? So he's he's taking the point but riffing on it within his own framework. So, and that's – I guess if there's anything fascinating, it's how – easy it is to do that mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's, uh, we, that's, that's true yeah we can take these these general complaints i mean each of us i believe recognizes how how detrimental to ourselves greed or um the desire to get a position the desire to get ahead mm-hmm. or the desire for knowledge at all costs or the desire to prove yourself in the world around you, or the desire to you know, sort of live as long as humanly possible, uh, so that you become a decrepit know nothing, you know, just circling the same news program again and again and again, <laughs> right. cutting off your children with an epistemological bubble, which is actually what he describes. Or you yeah, know, yeah. How, how vain all of these things are. And we we can take those 
I guess, foibles or vices and then update them with our own interpretations, our own contemporary interpretations. Vice never goes away. Um, we can fill it as it will from the contemporary age. Mm-hmm. So if there's anything to talk about here, I guess it's that. But it, it's it's sort of interesting to me how the poem ends. Yeah. Uh, Where then shall hope and fear their objects find? Must dull suspense corrupt the stagnant mind? Must helpless man in ignorance sedate roll darkling down the torrent of his fate? Okay, Juvenal ends in a kind of payon to fate. Mm-hmm. Um, trust the gods. Trust fate. Trust, you know... What you're doing? I mean, there's nothing or, you could trust. There's nothing you could do about it anyway. It's fate, so might yeah. as well. Yeah. Um. Now Johnson, as an 18th century Christian, uh, Church of England Christian, can't do that because fate is a very unChristian notion, mm-hmm. right? Um. So, what do you do? Must helpless man in ignorance sedate roll darkling down the torrent of his fate? Must no dislike alarm, no wishes rise, no cries attempt the mercies of the skies? Inquirer cease petitions yet remain, which heaven may hear, uh, nor deem religion vain. Still raise for good the supplicating voice, but leave to heaven the measure and the choice, safe in his power, whose eyes discern excuse me, eyes discern afar, the secret ambush of a specious prayer, employ his aid in his decision's rest, secure whatever he gives, he gives the best. Yet when the sense of sacred presence fires, and strong devotion to the skies aspires, pour forth thy fervors for a healthful mind, obedient passions, and a will resigned. For love, which scarce collective man can fill, for patience sovereign or transmuted ill, for faith that panting for a happier seat counts death kind nature's signal of retreat. These goods for man the laws of heaven ordain, the goods he grants who grants the power to gain. With these celestial wisdom calms the mind and makes the happiness she does not find." Yeah, okay. Everything you do <laughs> is doomed to fail. But I don't know, trust God. It's it's really <laughs> it's just fate with an extra step. Yeah. Is really all the, it is. Like it's the, yeah. It's a window dressing the, uh on the on fate really. Well, you know, I was on the subway home tonight and I was thinking about what what would accommodate this and all I could remember was Homer Simpson tripping balls on, um, I guess, cursed Chilean chili peppers. Oh, yes, yes. Um, when he's having the the sort of weird, bizarre, hallucinatory trip, uh, walks out into the desert and, you know, sun comes up, sun goes down. When he takes a step forward, <laughs> right. the sun comes up. When he takes a step back, the sun goes down. And he jumps back and forth so much that the sun crashes and breaks like a giant light bulb. And he has this moment where he says, note to self, don't do anything. <laughs> um, that, I think, is what Johnson comes down to. Yeah, uh, yeah. Note to self, don't do anything. Uh, but I do. But he he allows for. I think. But he does point out the importance of belly aching, pointless belly aching. You can still do that, <laughs> yes. and you can still address the the creator and sovereign of all existence. You can still address the ultimate reality with your gripes, you know, and just kind of yeah. just kind of bitch at him for a while, and that's fine. <laughs> and that'll help you feel better, and then you'll be happy. Is <laughs> that's the pitch? 
Well, this, this is what I find kind of weird. <sighs> All right. There, I, I guess Johnson is a kind of conservative. For his time, he was resisting. We, we talked about this last time. For his time, he was resisting certain of the cultural imperatives and impulses, or even political imperatives and impulses. And that sort of marks him as someone who's, I suppose, hesitant about steps forward or perhaps looking backwards. And there's this way that conservatism particularly as it gets articulated in America in the 20th century mm-hmm. is all about all about obsessing over the fact that there's no perfection of the human. Mm-hmm. And you find this articulation in the 50s and 60s with the rise of the actual conservative movement. Yeah. There's no perfection of the human so don't do anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, there's no perfection. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't take your leg out of a bear trap if your leg is in a bear trap. <laughs> oh, but but Claude, you forget that I, I you know, I had my car repossessed. So what's the point of removing my leg from a bear trap, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's sort of like just because humans will never be perfect doesn't mean we shouldn't aim for something mm-hmm. better than just sitting around with your leg in a bear trap. Yeah. Um, the, the, the thing that I think is kind of interesting to consider is the way that Johnson in his writings seems to espouse this gloom about what we're capable of actually accomplishing. And yet he did take up certain kinds of political or social positions that I think are quite admirable. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a, a pretty committed abolitionist. Yeah, yeah. Which honestly, this was the this was the um, not the high tide of it, but there was plenty of people who were writing all sorts of enlightened in in the in the uh, you know, of the Enlightenment sense defenses and justify justifications for slavery and racial hierarchy and all that. Like it's. It, it, it's it's uh, so it, it actually is kind of a, a pretty remarkable and I think intellectually respectable and consistent stand for him to make uh, considering the time. Yeah. So how do you square? Okay, we can't per- perfect ourselves, and yet I'm still going to take this stand. <laughs> right. And I, honestly, um, the I think maybe we've been coming at it the wrong way, and maybe what this is. Maybe Johnson discovered 18th century Anglican Taoism. <laughs> and, and keep with me, because I think if you strip away, you know, the, what, what we have here, if you strip away kind of a lot of assumptions here, what, I mean, what Johnson is arguing for is that kind of, you know, the, well, the, those whole like, I, I, and I, when I say Taoism, I mean more like strictly considering the Tao Te Ching. I don't mean the, the entire and much more, uh, uh, complex and varied religious system that evolved out of it. But of course, in the Tao Te Ching, you have the the notion of Tao, which is way, which is unavoidable, which is like water flowing down a hill. It's just how it's going to be because it's the way. Um, And continuing with the water metaphor, there are many passages talking about how, you know, if you, if water meets a stone in its path, it simply parts and goes around it. Um, 
And maybe that's that kind of, maybe that's the kind of state of mind he had arrived at as, as the kind of ideal, not exactly stoic because he still says, no, you should feel like things should be better. So that's not exactly stoicism, is it? Um, But I think maybe some kind of like having that kind of uh, moral agency within you and yet accepting, I guess, you know, accepting the cards where they, where they fall. I mean, and maybe that's being a little too generous, but, um, or maybe I'm not making any sense, but at least that's what what kind of, (laughs) I I picked up my antenna, picked that up. Yeah. It's how do you, how do you square? Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly. But sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game, and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com A feeling mm-hmm. of righteousness or, or, or a feeling of moral outrage. That things aren't as with, they should be. Yeah. With the belief that all is as God made it. Yeah. So it's, it's this real tension. And honestly, I I think we're starting to get at 
um, Johnson's depression. And I think he, he was kind of a, a famous depressive. Yeah, I think we're also getting at the the meme potatoes of Rasselas, honestly. Um, yeah. If uh, I guess if you're ready to, to transition over, I think because I think that's a good uh, stepping in point, really connecting these these works that we read. Yeah, I mean, why not? I mean, it, it, that that was the thing. You had a, a I think a, a witty line about uh, your preferment for vanity of human wishes over Rasselas. Uh, I won't steal it from you, but uh, it oh sure. Had to do with the fact that- <laughs> no, I actually yeah, I mean, you mentioned I made a note of it here. It's uh, I I was telling you that I preferred Vanity of Human Wishes to Rasselas because it's like everything in Rasselas, but in heroic couplets, and it's way shorter. Um, yes. And I and I also said that I, I prefer it because um, it has the excuse of being a poem written in a single voice for every line sounding the same. <laughs> <laughs> because man because just spoiler alert the the dialogue in Rasselas without the indicator of who is speaking you would have no idea who is speaking it is all everyone is Samuel Johnson talking to you <laughs> yeah it, it, it's all one register yeah um okay so Rasselas is tough to get through because it's not exactly a novel it's more of a philosophical allegory mm-hmm. drawing from the genre of romance you know, if, if you want to know about romance, go back to our episodes on um, Don Quixote. Yeah, Don, I was going to say Don Quixote. Yeah, we covered it uh, very well, very ably covered, Claude, as I recall. <laughs> as ably as I can do. <laughs> uh, but the it, it, it sort of draws from that. It's extraordinarily episodic. The characters are flat. There's no real growth. And honestly, I think that's kind of his point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I was compiling some dates – to, to give you a sense of um, – I guess to give you a sense of where the genre of the novel was when he wrote it, I put some dates together so that you could kind of see the progress. All right. Um, Rasselas was written in 1759 and like we sort of touched on earlier, the, the idea was that he was writing – to try to cover his mother's funeral expenses. Right. At, at least that's the legend that's been handed down. Okay, so 1759. Robinson Crusoe was written in 1719. Okay, Robinson Crusoe is really kind of boring. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, – I, I read it when I was in sixth grade and then I read it again in undergrad – and when I read it again in undergrad, I thought, well, maybe I was missing something back in sixth grade. And then I realized, no, no, there's 30 <laughs> pages about making a chair. Yeah. No, I did not miss a thing. Um, but Robinson Crusoe is uh, – it's a realistic novel because it has a character who both occupies an allegorical place and yet exhibits some kinds of psychology and there are 30 pages about making a chair because Crusoe is very, very interested in detailing in realistic fashion mm-hmm. what it would actually be like to be stranded on an island. Yeah. Uh, so it's both allegory and realism with some psychology thrown in to give you a sense of you know how the novel is developing. And we already talked about this a little bit with Don Quixote. I mean, I, I think Don Quixote is a fully fleshed novel. Oh, yeah. Uh, because of the psychological depth and because of the, the structural framework. And, and Don Quixote had been translated into English by this point. Uh, it, it was known. 
Okay, so 1719, you've got Crusoe's, uh, you've got uh, Robinson Crusoe. Okay, um, 1726, you've got Gulliver's Travels, which is a satirical novel, and Gulliver is kind of a cartoon, mm-hmm. but there is progress and some psychological development and a, a sort of greater complexity than just an allegory. Um, 1740, you've got Pamela. Okay. Pamela is an epistolary novel, uh, written by Richardson that details in, I think a thousand or so pages, uh, this attempted seduction or attempted (laughs) rape of this woman. Uh, but it's an epistolary novel and the epistolary format i.e. letter writing format allows the the main character the narrator to develop this complicated psychology over the course of these thousand pages uh and it's plotted to get to a certain point uh 1749 that's tom jones yeah all right tom jones in case any of our listeners haven't read it go read it uh especially if you're an english speaker it's extraordinarily witty extraordinarily funny the it's one of the most tightly plotted novels ever Mm -hmm. and it's sort of like something will happen and you think okay this is a random event and then in the last act there are all these callbacks and you'll suddenly see oh i misinterpreted (laughs) ahead yeah oh i did this oh i did this and so it's it's an extraordinarily well-plotted piece where everything comes together at the end in this way that, you know, really is reminiscent of Dickens. Yeah. Okay. So that's 1749. And it's got these complicated, weird characters who seem to just kind of bounce off the page. Uh, 1759, you have the first volumes of Tristram Shandy. Okay. Yeah. And Tristram Shandy is a novel that's so much a novel that it's an anti-novel. Um, it's so bizarre and weird and crazy, but it's playing with generic form right as the genre is getting started. Um, most other novels, well, it purports to be the memoir of a gentleman, and most memoirs begin with birth to proceed through life. And so the joke in Tristram Shandy is that Tristram Shandy the putative uh, subject and narrator wants to go back even further to begin with his conception. Uh-huh. And if you can read accurately, then you suddenly realize that he's blaming his mother and father for his strange disposition because his mother – was obsessed with whether or not the clock got wound at the right time because when the clock got wound at the right time was the time when his father came up to have sex with her uh-huh. and that became their regular routine and she may or may not be aroused enough to conceive. And uh, while his father was at work on the conception, his mother was concerned about whether or not the clock was wound the right time. <laughs> yes. And so I mean, it it the the novel if you know how to read it and understand it begins with his parents having sex. Yeah. Okay, so it's it's extraordinarily silly and funny and weird and it has 
almost no plot. It just cycles around itself. And the thing about Tristram Shandy is, well, okay, the genre has taken off to a point that it can even parody itself. Mm-hmm. In 1759, Rasselas is published. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, <laughs> so there's, huh, there's yeah. this history and, and Johnson was a, a very astute reader and he knew the genre and he knew all of these things about it. So why did he make something this – Stultifying? Kind of – yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean for lack of a better word. Um, and and even if you wanted to do a satirical novel, Swift had done Gulliver's Travels. Gulliver's Travels is, is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's really funny and hilarious and strange and weird and just mind-bending. Um, and in 1759, Voltaire wrote Candide. And one of the things that we were joking about is, is Rasselas, uh, I, I think I kind of mentioned to you, uh, off air that Rasselas is sort of like Candide mm-hmm. without the speed and wit. Right. <laughs> and the thing is like, and there are jokes in it, but boy, they're just not funny. Um, and they're few and far between. Yeah. So I guess, I guess for the, uh, for the sake of the audience, we can give sort of, I, I guess I can give like a, at least a, you know, what outline of what plot there is. To, uh, to yeah, the books. So they'll know okay. we're, we're talking about a little bit. So, the history of Rasselas, a prince of Abyssinia, by Samuel Johnson. Um, it is uh, like I was saying; it's kind of it's an allegorical kind of thing. But it, it begins in he's decided to set it in Abyssinia, which is uh, what is today Ethiopia, basically, um, which would have been a sort of exotic locale. Um, so, in this exotic locale, he situates that the sort of there's a a, a hidden valley. Uh, a secret uh, valley with one entrance through the through the rocks into this you know luscious valley where the uh, the king and all of his princes and the royal the whole royal court resides in in total and utter contentment. It's called the Happy Valley, and everyone there like their every day is a smorgasbord of delicious foodstuffs. There's uh, wi- as much wine as you might like, song and dance, and we all do it again the next day, just forever and ever, on and on. Um, Everything, everything is, is, is seen to, and there's, you know, uh, the refinement is taught. Like it's just, it's the happy Valley. So one of the residents of the happy Valley is Prince Rasselas, uh, who decides that he, well, he has only Claude. He has, uh, he has the heart sickness of just, there's got to be more to life than this. Uh, and so he contrives to escape this happy Valley with the help of, uh, one of the other, I guess it was an entertainer who's like a sort of, a, a, a visitor to court, uh, to tell of his travels, a man named Imlac. Um, with his assistance, he escapes the Happy Valley by, by tunneling through a mountain. And they are accompanied by his sister, um, God, I can't even remember her name right now. Uh, Nikaya. Nikaya, that's right. And then, uh, one of Nikaya's handmaidens. They, they escape out into, and then, well, and, oh, and sorry, we don't man. even really find out about the handmaiden or retinue until i don't know 100 pages later but yeah yeah <laughs> anyway i think it is mentioned that like some you know some members of the household went with them so now they are now Imlac himself um sort of whetted restless's appetite for getting out of the happy valley by telling him all about his travels and he had been all around uh to uh araby to india to uh turkey to iran to egypt he had been everywhere you know, he'd seen it all in syria um and uh dis- and so, uh, using so Imlac as the worldly guide, they make their way to Cairo, uh, in Egypt and just have so, you know, all manner of 
boring adventures. Um, and because <laughs> I really can't like a plot is just it's nothing. And then they all talk to each other about what is the way to be happy. And they ask like a rich man if he's happy. And, they, you know, it's just that, that kind of, basically it covers the same material that Vanity of Human Wishes covered. Just with these, yeah. just with these small handful of characters all repeating Johnson's kinds of arguments back at each other in a way, um, right? And then so, it, it ends up with the same conclusion as Vanity of Human Wishes that, like, well, you know, everyone's going to be crappy wherever you go, so no one's ever going to be happy. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, if I can fill in a little bit, sure, sure, um, sure. They they meet Imlac, who tells him his backstory. He wanted to know the world. Um, he eschewed money making. Uh, he wanted to be a poet or find out about poetry or find out about the arts. Um, he ended up going back into business because his dad gave him a ton of money and said, Hey, go learn about business, be part of this thing. He was cheated. He learned, he learned poetry. He traveled as a merchant and saw basically everything. And when he got home, he found out that no one wanted to listen to him. All his friends were dead or uh, everyone thought he was uh, a kind of lunatic for having left. So, eh, okay. So they find a way out through the mountain mm-hmm. and they go to Cairo and Rasselas and crew are initially dazzled and uh, first Rasselas devotes himself to pleasure. Uh, he meets a bunch of like drunk rowdy party dudes mm-hmm. and then he gets bored. So then he finds a wise philosopher and teacher who tells him all about being a Stoic, but who himself can't be Stoic. Right. And then they attempt to become pastoral shepherds, and they make the working class who hate them. <laughs> and, the, okay. and I think in Johnson's framing on that – I actually made a note of this because Johnson's framing on that seems like they – I don't know. It seemed like he was coming down hard on the pastoral shepherds for resenting the rich princes and yes. stuff. And it was like, buddy, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was framed as though their complaint that it's that their hard work is taken and turned into luxury for other people to enjoy was somehow illegitimate. But no, man, that's yeah. exactly how it works. <laughs> that's, I, know. that's well, see, I, I thought Cervantes had a much more benevolent view of Shepherds, but Cervantes was a working dude himself. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, so anyway, anyway, anyway. Uh, <laughs> they, that, that, they ra- that raised my class where hackles is what I'm saying. No, me, t- me too, me too. That that was another moment where I was like, "Come on, man!" <laughs> uh, but then they they meet a rich guy who is miserable because he's paranoid that people are going to kill him and steal his riches, and then they meet a fur. Hermit, who says that, well, hermiting wasn't so great. And then they meet uh, a natural philosopher, i.e. sort of metaphysician, who is unintelligible. And then they decide to split up. Uh, Rasselas goes to seek uh, the court, to see what he can see at court. And the princess, uh, Nakaya, goes to see what she can see of domestic life. Uh, Rasselas goes and sees that power corrupts and um, others scheme some device to you know find a way to become more powerful and kill the governor. And the princess finds that domestic life is basically filled with backbiting and stupidity. So the, the organization of court and the organization of the family pretty much one and the same. Mm-hmm. Um, they debate the greatness of marriage and find – 
Well, it's inconclusive. Uh, Imlac returns, and they have great chapter titles. Imlac returns and changes the subject. Uh, because there's no, I mean, that's kind of Johnson's point. There's yeah. no end to this. Um, so they decide to go to the pyramids. Nikaya's lady is kidnapped, uh, Pekua, and Imlac tries to convince Nikaya to let it go. They half-heartedly search for Pekua and eventually find her and ransom her back. Mm-hmm. And then we have this sort of sub-story of the adventures of Lady Pekua. She was kidnapped by an Arab pirate. Uh, he was a gentleman pirate and held in a tower in the Nile. Uh, she tries to converse with the harem, but the harem is boring as sin because they're just uneducated, know-nothing women. And this is playing on, I guess, 18th century notions Mm -hmm. of what the Arab world was like. Uh, Perhaps you can touch on that. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Anyway, she learns how to read the stars because this gentleman pirate teaches her, I don't know, everything he knows about constellations. And eventually he's released. Imlac meets an astronomer who's lost his mind and (laughs) believes that he can influence the weather. Um, They... uh, they talk about how imagination is dangerous. It's a kind of epistemological closure. Yeah. Uh, they meet an old man who is basically extraordinarily pessimistic because he thinks that age does nothing and life is worthless. Uh, they try to socialize the astronomer and he's kind of sort of healed from his delusions. Uh, Imlac talks about the soul for a while. They go to the catacombs to see the mummies because they're like, well, we've seen everything else. Let's just go remind ourselves that we all die. They get rained in because the rainy season has come to Egypt and they have all these discussions about what they want to do and what they would like to do and all of their desires and all of their desires come to nothing. So they decide to go back to Abyssinia. <laughs> right. That's, I mean, okay. It's don't read it because I just told it to you. Yeah. Um, th- th- there's, it really is Johnson's points repeated again and again and again and again and again. Uh, there are some, some minor variations and permutations and some semi-stoic observations of how psychology operates. Mm-hmm. But, but overall, it's, it really is, as you said, it's just, it's a dud. It's, it's, it's a dud. I mean, we got, yeah, it's we, almost like reading debate points. Right. And, <laughs> and I think, well, what's interesting is like talking with you about this and, and, my, and my feelings about it. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like this is the first real dud that I've had to read for this project. Yeah. Um, I expected them to happen just because of my own mush brain and everything, but it's really, this is the first time that like, I was like, I, I didn't enjoy this as much or more than something else I could have been reading. Um, but uh, there were, there were one or two moments that I found kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. When when mostly having to do with the astronomer who has lost his mind. Mm-hmm. And okay, on the one hand, Johnson I, he had an 18th century understanding of mental illness. Yeah. But as someone who spent hours and hours and hours in his office trying to compose hundreds of pages of a dissertation, um, it kind of hit close to home. There's this way mm-hmm. that solitude and scholarly work can weigh on you mm, yeah. and, and 
become delusional. Yeah, um, yeah. It, okay. He has this chapter, The Dangerous Prevalence of Imagination. Disorders of intellect, answered Imlech, happen much more often than superficial observers will easily believe. Perhaps if we speak with rigorous exactness, no human mind is in its right state. There is no man whose imagination does not sometimes predominate over his reason, who can regulate his attention wholly by his will, and whose ideas will come and go at his command. No man will be found in whose mind airy notions do not sometimes tyrannize and force him to hope or fear beyond the limits of sober probability. All power of fancy over reason is a degree of insanity. But while this power is such as we can control and repress, it is not visible to others, nor considered as any deprivation of the mental faculties. It is not pronounced madness, but when it becomes ungovernable and apparently influences speech or action. Okay, there's something in here which reminded me of Montaigne. Mm Mm-hmm. This way that our our minds are not ours, our 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 ways of thinking, they're not under our control. Right, they get away from us. Uh, Montaigne was saying that you know sometimes I feel uh, my mind is like I'm getting on a horse and it's just riding away with me. <laughs> it's out of control. Yeah, uh, but. <laughs> This is the difference, I think, between Montaigne and Johnson. We were talking about this a little bit last time. Montaigne is forever fascinated and bemused right. by his own strangeness. Right, right. Like, I, I, hmm, well, this is a fascinating thing. And he sees no reason to critique or bemoan that fact. It's just, eh, I just go with it. It is what it is. <laughs> whereas, uh, yeah, whereas Johnson is just like, I'm just going to add this, this to my catalog of everything wrong with the world. Yes. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and so I, I think for Johnson, it's a, a really fearful thing mm-hmm. to indulge the power of fiction and send imagination out upon the wing is often sport to those uh, is often the sport of those who delight too much in silent speculation. When we are alone, we are not always busy. The labor of excogitation is too violent to last long. The ardor of inquiry will sometimes give way to idleness or satiety. He who has nothing external that can divert him must find pleasure in his own thoughts and must conceive himself what he is not. For who is pleased with what he is? He then expatiates in boundless futurity and calls from all re- imaginable conditions that which for the present moment he should most desire, amuses his desires with impossible enjoyments, and confers upon his pride unattainable dominion. The mind dances from scene to scene. Unites all pleasures in all combinations and riots and delights which nature and fortune with all their bounty cannot bestow. Uh, when when Montaigne is alone, he's fascinated. Mm-hmm. When Johnson is alone, he's depressed. He's yeah, he's 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 almost uh, he's mortified. He and and it, it is it is interesting to I don't know. You you would think as a as someone of the writerly persuasion that he would have gotten used to being on his own for his, for his work. I mean, I, but uh, evidently it weighs on the, the entire time. I, I, and I think especially like if, when your profession is writer, I, I, can, I guess I can only speak from experience here, but the, the only, I mean, fluent writing is an act of letting your mind fly away from you. That's yeah. the only way I can fluently write is if I enter into that kind of what trance state almost. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. I mean the the 
how do I put this? There's this reminds me, uh, like I keep saying, this is all about diversions. But there's this weird moment in Thomas Pinchon's Gravity's Rainbow, where they have this. He has this weird magical realist seeming type, if you want to call it that, moment where uh, this light bulb becomes sentient. And it's all sort of filtered through the light bulb's consciousness. And it's this weird kind of Gnostic parable. Uh, uh, several critics have read this as Pinchon's kind of autobiographical intervention in the middle of Gravity's Rainbow. Yeah. And Byron the Bulb goes through all of this insanity. And he's in Nazi Germany and then – post-war Germany and he sees everything and he understands that all the – he understands things that all the other light bulbs cannot understand and he's trying to organize and arrange the light bulbs and wake them up and get them to see and they won't and he slowly – he's frustrated and angry and paranoid and obsessed and then he falls in love with his own madness Hmm. So it keeps perpetuating it. Um, he falls in love with his symptom, sort of in like this weird Freudian sense. There's this way in which I sometimes wonder if Johnson has fallen in love with his own depression. Yeah, yeah. Like he, there, there's this way in which um, he he keeps. To my mind, diagnosing these ways in which that self-enfolding can become detrimental, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It, it, <laughs> it can become a form of self-hatred. Yeah. And it's an obsessive loathing of the self. If there's anything to take away from Restless, it's that. Right. It's, it's sort of like these insections about madness, which I think is ultimately about depression. Yeah. And at the same time, it's an obsessive diagnosis and it seems as if he's pointing out the things that he is doing or should be doing that are ultimately detrimental to him, right? Don't stay up in your tower all day writing, but I have to stay up in my tower all day writing. Right. So my only outlet is to write about what I should be doing instead of what I am doing. <laughs> that's a little, that's wild. That, that drew so much more poetry out of what I read <laughs> than I was able to. And that actually is kind of beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, but again, this is, this was all I think contained in those essays. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think that gets to the nub of it though, that like maybe I would have been more sensitive to it if I hadn't already, or maybe I should have been more sensitive to it since I'd already read the essays. But um, I don't know. I, I, I think Rasselas's impact was lessened simply because we had already seen what Johnson's overweening interests and obsessions were. And yeah. so this wasn't really very fresh. This was just like, uh, this, <laughs> this was just like if some, if some, um, oh, it's, it's like when someone, uh, <laughs> it's like when a Twitter account you really like comes out with a book. 
yeah, okay. And, right. Right. It's, and it's just like, oh, yeah, you know, okay, I know. <laughs> this is, I know that's how you feel yeah. about this. Okay. Which is maybe exactly. a very specific experience, but um, I, I was, it just, that's what uh, occurred to me just now. No, I mean, I, I, I think that's it. Or when a blog becomes a book. Right, 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 right. It's sort of like, you know, that the, you already know what you're expecting. You already see what's there. So it feels like a retread. Yeah. Even if there is new material. But as, so I, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I guess that puts Rasslis to bed. <laughs> It does put restless to bed, but one little uh, thing I wanted to put sort of on top, and and um, if you'll indulge me, Claude, um, uh, why not? And it's simply because the uh, the the fact is this is one of the <laughs> this is one of those times where something that I've been really fascinated with for a while has become relevant to the Cannonball Project, and it's a cool way in for me to tell one of my favorite history stories, um, if okay. if you'll permit me. Um, I promise I I won't take too long with it. But did you, did you, dear listener, wonder why the heck did uh, did Samuel Johnson decide to set this thing in Ethiopia? What possible reason would have he had to do that? Well, he had a career connection to Ethiopia because one of Johnson's first jobs, one of his first paying publishing jobs was translating a French language abridgment of a Spanish Jesuit's account of his time spent in Ethiopia in the 16th century. That was one of Johnson's first big jobs. Um, and the, the, and so I had to think like, it was just fascinating to me. Like he had to select a kind of far off realm for his little allegory. He was going to write if, if even we would call it allegory for all reasons <laughs> addressed before. Yeah. Um, why did he pick Abyssinia, which was the current term for what we today call Ethiopia? Although, it's it specifically returns to a term it refers to a smaller region within what is today ethiopia um and that would have been the reason why it's like well he had some kind of sort of familiarity with it even though it doesn't actually impinge on what he describes very much which i thought was interesting because he would have had honestly he would have been someone much more informed about this land than really any of his countrymen because he was translating a firsthand admittedly well a translated firsthand account from a mildly hostile observer, um, which is still better than anyone else could have had. So how did he end up with this? Right. So this Jesuit was by, who wrote this account was by the name of Hieronimo Lobo. He was among the last Jesuits who had been in Ethiopia where there had been a Jesuit mission since like the 1520s. And mm-hmm. this is, I just, I, I love this so much. So, um, so Ethiopia in the 1520s, it had been a, basically a, a Christian monarchy for uh, really since before the fall of the Western Roman empire, since the four hundreds. And it had been the Genesis sort of been the kernel of legends in the medieval uh, Western church world of Prester John, the sort of mythical mm. Christian King ruling over a land of plenty separated from us by the realms of the Muslims, but who would come to the aid of, of, of Christendom at the appointed time. So the Jesuits had just around this, or rather the Portuguese had just around this time rounded the Cape of Good Hope down at the southern end of Africa. They were making inroads into the Indian Ocean, and they were very eager to contact Prester John because they were like, oh, right, well, there's this great Christian kingdom around here, right? <laughs> so we got we to look, look for it. And, and they do find, in fact, uh, Ethiopia. Um, so the Jesuits made contact. Of course, uh, the Jesuits were kind of the um, imperial shock troops of the Portuguese because they were the <laughs> they, they were of course a religious order within the Catholic Church that was very interested in 
and uh, spreading, basically in being a kind of uh, a missionary organization and a information collective organization. Um, and the emperors of Ethiopia were at this time in a position where they were very much very happy to have anyone who might be on their side because this was actually a kind of a low ebb in Ethiopian political history, or rather for the Ethiopian monarchy at least, because they were in kind of entrenched against an expanding uh, Somali-led Muslim state to their east coming out of what is today uh, uh, you know, Somalia and uh, uh, eastern Ethiopia. Um, so really the Ethiopian emperors were happy for any kind of uh, allies they could get. And the Jesuits were like, wow, we found Prester John. <laughs> this is great. And also <laughs> the, uh, the, the Adal Sultanate was this Muslim state that was kind of rivals of them. They were allies of the Ottoman Empire. The Portuguese were very interested in blunting Ottoman trade power in the Red Sea in this part of the world. So they were like, this is a natural alliance. You know, this is, this is going to be great. Now, this is the 1520s we're talking about. So anyone who was really Catholic was also really concerned about maintaining the papacy's position as the arbiter of what is and isn't Christian. Because, of course, this is Martin Luther times. <laughs> so, right. those Jesu- oh, so, no. so these Jesuits and these Portuguese ambassadors who were in contact with the Ethiopian emperors were basically like, look, we would love to ally with you guys. However, it looks like you have your own indigenous uh, Christian tradition reaching back a thousand years. We're going to have to have you change that before we can be your allies. <laughs> which, of course, would not have sat well with the vast majority of Ethiopian society, especially not the elite society, which right. was heavily involved in this, in this, their uh, indigenous Orthodox church. Um, so the... Uh, but it was so important to get that Portuguese, the, the comparatively technologically advanced Portuguese on their side that these Ethiopian emperors would do things like convert to Catholicism in secret so that they wouldn't have to uh, rile up their, 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 <laughs> you know, their, their, their lords and their bishops. But at the same time, could then, then the Jesuits could petition the Portuguese crown for assistance because like, oh, well, this guy's Catholic. It's cool. This guy's Catholic. He's just doing it careful. So with the Portuguese mm-hmm. help, um, they actually do face off the challenge of the Adal Sultanate. The, uh, you know, the, the, Ethio- the Christian Ethiopian uh, regime kind of strengthens its position around a region which became known as Abyssinia. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, this couldn't go on forever. Uh, <laughs> and by um, just because of uh, various factors, like basically the strength of the indigenous uh, Ethiopian tradition and the fact that there was at that time an internal schism between Christological interpretations within the Ethiopian church, the whole religious situation was just too tense. And so by the 1630s, the, uh, the emperor Facilides uh, had basically booted all of the Portuguese out. Any kind of Catholicizing reforms were undone. Uh, he actually actually ordered all of the, uh, what they call Frankish books burned because it was all about this kind of retrenchment, this, um, you know, retrenchment against uh, new newly coming challenges from rest of Muslim vassal states and southern Oromo uh, cattle herders that were starting to move up into the plateau, the Ethiopian highlands. So they got all booted out. So Hieronimo Lobo was of this last bit who got booted out. And he wrote this account of his time in Ethiopia. And this kind of, this was, of course, a very popular time for travel logs. This was Mm-hmm. Kind of what, it, what is what is termed the age of discovery in more Eurocentric, uh, you know, historiographical traditions. But this was a time when there was a huge appetite for accounts of these strange new places that people were that these Western European countries were finding themselves in contact with. 
So Geronimo Lobo writes an account of his time uh, in the 1630s. And this eventually gets translated into the French in an abridgment. And so a hundred years after Geronimo Lobo was kicked out of Ethiopia, Samuel Johnson <laughs> translates a French language uh, abridgment of his account of his time in, the, in, in Abyssinia, as Johnson would have known it. And that's how Johnson draws on this material. I just... It's just, it's fantastic. And I really, I urge everybody to learn, well, one, learn more about Ethiopian history. It is a fascinating, yeah. fascinating place and a fascinating collection of peoples that uh, are, are involved in interacting with this cultural tradition. Um, uh, but also just this, um, I don't know, it was just fascinating. This kind of, it, it, it's, it's. Oh, I can't even put it into words just how much I love that story as just a as a way into a whole range of things about history. But it's also bitterly ironic then that Johnson places his happy valley in this Abyssinia. Because in Johnson's time, yeah. you know, the, the book that he translated was a hundred years old by the time he translated it. In Johnson's time, Abyssinia was basically like do you remember that episode of Futurama where they go to that planet of the people like made out of water and Fry accidentally drinks and assassinates yes. the emperor? And it turns out that that's just their way of government is that each emperor is drunk and assassinated by the one before him, like on a like biweekly basis. Yeah, basically. That was Abyssinian politics when Johnson was writing Rasselas. <laughs> like oh Rasselas has this fictionalized Abyssinia set in this happy valley of total contentment and total um uh even complacency with this, this yeah. completely uh, untouched and unravaged by any disturbance meanwhile in actual abyssinia like i mean we're talking about like the the emperor's personal guards are poisoning the like there's the same set of guards poisoned two emperors in a row basically <laughs> like i mean it got bad so it's it's all it's this really bitterly ironic uh almost uh, sort of setting for his little allegory and a part of me wonders that, like, if maybe in a hundred years had communications gotten any better, was there any kind of inkling of this fact among the British intelligentsia? I feel like there might be because by this point, of course, the British East India Company was much more on its feet and was, of course, gobbling up much more Indian territory and labor and was very active in the Red Sea trade. I can't help but feel Johnson might have known that maybe things weren't so happy in the Happy Valley, but right. who can who can say for sure? Yeah, I mean, I, I, the thing he he keeps coming back to is, well, vanity of human wishes. Mm -hmm. All desires are vain. Uh, we're led on by this this belief we have that we lack something, and gaining that thing we believe we lack will lead to ultimate fulfillment. But every gain creates more lack, and every gain creates more lack. So you're just chasing the dragon throughout your life. Um, I, you know, that's a good question. What would he have known about the actual place mm -hmm. aside from what he translated? Yeah, there, there was a book I, I couldn't get my hands on. I was trying, but it's a more recent book that tries to look at at. Rasselas, not so much as a kind of binary colonizer colonized. I mean, there we haven't even touched on it. There's a whole Orientalist <laughs> yeah, honestly, reading I, of Rasselas that you could do. Yeah, we, we really don't have the time to get into that, but that's that, that's a shame. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe, actually, maybe we should write a blog post about it. 
<laughs> I'll see what I can do yeah. for spring break. I'll, 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 uh, uh, I'll work on it myself. We'll, so we'll do some extra content about some other thoughts about Rastless from an Orientalist standpoint. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but the the there was one work that I couldn't get my hands on, which was trying to look at the complicated interchange between the the Ethiopians on the ground, how they thought about themselves, how they were being thought about from the the sort of English point of view. And if I understand correctly, the thesis is that it's not binary, that it's a complicated interchange, which does not downplay the subjection of non-Western peoples, mm-hmm. but is also interested in the ways that <clears throat> it's – it's more complicated than just master servant. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's. Um, uh, in fact, I think I have the kernel of my blog post. A little bonus content here. I know what I'm going to know what I'm going to be writing uh, about. <laughs> I couldn't track down that book. Yeah. So, but no, it actually touches on some of the stuff I've been reading about with the uh, with the book I've been reading. So we'll 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 talk in the private chat. You know, we don't want to <laughs> we don't want to give the go we don't want to give away the game. All right. Well, anyway, let's let's put Rassilus to bed. Uh, because I think that's that's about what you can say about, or it's mm-hmm. about what I can say about it. I don't know. Yeah, about you. yeah, um, yeah. I, th- I think we we said what we were going to say about it, and what we would have said about it was covered in a lot of what we already said about Johnson. <laughs> yeah. So it, the the next step of the game, we're going to finish up Johnson. I can't believe we did this to ourselves. We're going to finish up. But the thing Johnson. is, the dictionary is easily the most fun thing he ever did, though. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're going to be reading the literary criticism in the sections of the dictionary that are available in the Oxford uh, edition. And if you want to know more about that, go visit the blog. It's the Cannonball Podcast dot uh, WordPress dot blog that I, we listed out which works specifically we're going to be taking on. And so we're going to be looking at his later works and his his literary criticism and his sort of editorial endeavors, which hopefully will be a little more interesting. <laughs> I think uh, I so. Feel I like think we, so. We covered the same thing twice. Uh, but anyway, so I guess that's it for part two of Johnson. Stay tuned for part three. Hopefully it won't take as long as this one took, but who knows? <laughs> but it's going to be, but it's going to be great radio no matter what. And uh, I hope you all join us again. And um, remember, Samuel Johnson can't go on forever. And we'll talk about what we're uh, covering uh, next time. (laughs) That's right. All right. Take care, Daniel. All right. Good night, man.